Okay. All right. I am recording. Going to go ahead and read the thing? I will go ahead and read the thing. The search had been long, arduous, and dangerous, but the prize had been found. The Ark of the Covenant itself, ancient artifact of history, myth, and legend, was there before them, its gilded surface glinting in the moonlight. On an island near Crete, the Nazis watched as an ancient ritual began. It had been sought by the Nazis under the direct order of Hitler, but had been found by an American professor of archaeology and his team of researchers first. However, the Nazis had taken it by force. Over the next few moments, the entire contingent of Nazi soldiers and Gestapo officers would die in mysterious circumstances. Some blamed an explosion at the base due to poorly stored munitions. Others declared it was the wrath of God descending on the wicked. Whether by divine intervention or mundane human error, the only survivors of the night would be the American archaeology professor and his head assistant. In this episode of Relative Disasters, the search for rediscovery and eventual disappearance of the Ark of the Covenant in a flare of unexplained deaths. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, head of the Questionably Obtained Antiquities Department here at Relative Disasters Incorporated. And I'm his sister Ella, adjunct professor here at the School of Biblical Archaeology here at Relative Disasters University. Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg. Yeah. Uh, This is something I don't know a lot about, and I'm super happy to learn more. Yeah, this one is a, a bit bananas. First of all, it's important to point out that most of the information that we have on this disaster comes from... Only a few sources. One was from a Freedom of Information Act filed with the United States government because a lot of the events that we're going to talk about were actually classified. They were things that took place right before the United States entry into World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's only one other really good source on this, which is a documentary film from the early 1980s. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Later so I just well. want to say up front, I have a huge fondness for the documentary film. I grew up watching it. I feel like we both did. I feel yeah. like I know it inside out. It's one of those things that would like play on a weird channel at two in the morning kind of things. I think it was honestly one of those like uh, deals where, you know, a lot of these films were sort of free to cable. So they just put them up there like Wizard of Oz and uh, mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life. I checked on this, by the way, and this documentary is actually pretty hard to get your hands on these days really yeah you know there are some rips of tv tapings floating around on youtube but they get taken mm-hmm. down pretty consistently so interesting yeah i i have I a, smell copy a conspiracy of <laughs> yes of course you do of course you do <laughs> i i do have a copy of of the documentary and um and I actually watched it again brushing up uh, for this episode. And it is fascinating. Yay. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to track down. Um, it's just such a wild story. It's a banana story. Okay, so first thing that we've got to talk about, uh, we've got to talk about what the Ark of the Covenant actually is. So, mm-hmm. in essence, it is a box that holds the remains of the Ten Commandments. So the, the Moses comes down from the mountain, he, get, he sees... 
people worshipping a golden idol. He gets enraged. He smashes the tablets on the ground. They build this box, and they put the smashings of the tablets in there. And what's kind of cool about this uh, from biblical study mm -hmm. is that the book of Exodus actually has, like the uh, the construction blueprints for the ark no kidding two and a half cubits in length one and a half in breadth and one and a half in height and then and it how much is a cubit again it works out to about 52 by 31 by 31 inches oh so not huge no it's not that big okay and then it needs to be gilded entirely in gold molding of gold is to be put around it four rings of gold attached to four corners two on each side and through these rings, staves of a special wood overlaid in gold uh, are to be inserted for carrying the Ark, and those cannot be removed. And then Ooh. there is the, the golden lid, which is covered with two golden cherubs uh, to be placed atop the Ark. So okay. the, all of those instructions come directly from the book of Exodus. Here is where the sourcing, uh, the historical sourcing for this is a little tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, the biblical account says that after the ark was made, the Israelites carried it through their 40 years of wandering in the deserts. Whenever they would uh, camp, they would put the ark by itself in a special tent. Mm -hmm. And when Joshua led them towards the promised land, the ark was like their advance, their vanguard, basically. The people carrying it walked in front and mm -hmm. dried the Jordan River and remained so until everyone had passed over it. Interesting. Yeah. And then at the Battle of Jericho, the Ark was carried around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they sounded all the trumpets and then uh, Jericho's walls fell down. So are they like taking out the stones? No, or is, no, is no, no. You're like never to so open powerful. it. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're never supposed to open it. You're not even supposed to touch it. That's what the four poles are for. The poles are for people carrying it. And that's as okay. close as it's like safe to get to the ark. You're never supposed to I open gotcha. it. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, okay. I was just it's, wondering, like, it sounds utilitarian, but obviously a little it's, bit. It's... Yeah. And, and it's, and it's one of those things where it's, uh, the power of it because it contains the word of God gotcha. and it knocks everybody flat who, who tries to oppose you. Oh, so no wonder it gets its own tent. It does. It gets its own tent. You wouldn't uh, want to sleep with that. And that tent is called the tabernacle, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. So hmm. that's where that comes from. Uh, okay. So the Ark moves around a bunch. Uh, it is captured by the Philistines mm -hmm. early on and then they retake the Ark. King David is the one to retake it. He goes back to Zion with it. Okay, so when they build Solomon's temple, there's mm -hmm. a special room that was made just to house the Ark, and the Ark was placed in there. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, and that's where the historical record of the Ark sort of goes away. Oh, dear. Some scholars think that it was carried off by the Babylonians to Babylon. Mm -hmm. Some believed that it was hidden away in the rubble. Some believe that Josiah, the king of Judah, took the Ark with him to prevent the Babylonians from taking it. And we're still in the Old Testament, right? Oh, this yeah. Is like... we're, we're still very okay. much, yeah. We're, we're still very we kinda much kind of lost track Testament. of where we were. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is about just after 600 BCE. Gotcha. We're, we're still back there. So the next time that the Ark sort of pops up 
is actually with a Egyptian pharaoh. One of the legends is that before the Babylonians, 500 years before the Babylonians, mm -hmm. uh, the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak raided the Temple of Solomon and took the Ark with him to the city of Tanis. And there's some historical record for this. In the tomb of Tutankhamun, there is an Ark, not the Ark, but an Ark, constructed in much the same way, but, you know, Egyptian instead of Hebrew. That blows my mind. Okay, yeah. so King Tut also had, like, a mini Ark. And, and it was something that was fairly common with a number of other pharaohs. Uh, wow. These big golden boxes that were meant to house incredibly important things. Mm -hmm. So the the writing on this one is, is pretty cool. Uh, so Shishak apparently steals the Ark, takes it with him to the city of Tanis. He then has a series of dreams where he's visited by Osiris. And Ooh. at the instructions of Osiris, he builds this building called the Well of Souls, okay? Mm -hmm. And the Well of Souls is, it, it's bananas. Uh, it, is, it is a vault inside of the temple. It, this vault was built just to house the Ark, to hide it from Amun-Ra, okay? Okay. All right. So now are we talking above ground, below ground? It is underground. It's underground. Okay. It's dug deep down into the ground. And <laughs> the room itself is hidden. So there's this other room in the temple called the map room. Uh-huh. Where there's there were some clues, basically. So what they do is they Oh yeah. They I have, have the, heard of this. The place. priests exactly. The priests would know about it and then they would they'd be like, Oh yeah, it's over there. But the right, common right, right. people coming into the temple wouldn't know about it. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, uh, the next thing that winds up happening, and this is where the Ark completely drops off the historical record, Tannis mm -hmm. gets buried in a sandstorm. Whoops. Yeah, just buried. The whole city is gone. Um, the, the only mentions of it that we have are that there is a Hebrew text that says that God saw to it that Tannis would be buried. Hmm. And then that's it. Tannis is gone. And uh, we lose track of the Ark. So, we pick up again in 1936. So, it's a bit, a bit of a time jump. That is quite a jump, yeah. <laughs> Almost a thousand so no BCE one has, to 1936. Um, no one has located Tanis or the Ark during this time. Okay, so the Egyptian government kind of knows where Tanis was. Because there are maps, okay. right? It's not like it's like a completely lost city, but... The topography has changed so much. I mean, we're right. talking about 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. And the temple itself is lost. Like, there are other sort of settlements near it, but... So they know the general area, but nobody's, like, gone there and dug it out. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, okay. gotcha. And this was a big city. I mean, this city had a palace in it. Yeah. They were starting to build a pyramid. There were huge, huge religious statues. Center. Exactly. This was a big, mm -hmm. big deal. And... In the early 1900s, there were some early excavations of the site. Okay. Now, in the 1920s, an archaeologist named Abner Ravenwood, which is a fantastic name. Heck yes. Have you seen his picture? He has the most amazing mustache uh, yes, I've ever seen. That is a fantastic stash. <laughs> um, he actually finds a, an artifact called the Headpiece to the Staff of Ra, which was mm -hmm. like half of the equation to finding 
where the uh, Well of Souls was, okay? Does he have any provenance on that, or does it just, like, turn up one day on, a, on the dig? It's a small piece, so mm-hmm. my guess is that he just sort of grabbed it. Oh, Abner. <laughs> I mean... That's it, so American archaeology. It's very much... Though. It's it's a big... It, it essentially looks like a big golden medallion. Nice. and And so it looks like he, he took it, but knowing what we know of the career of Abner Ravenwood, uh, mm-hmm. it's probably he took it for further study and to keep it out of the hands of some less scrupulous individuals. Okay. So he tucked it away in his mustache for another day. Yes. Yes. He just hung a bag <laughs> off the end of his mustache. Um, so in the night in the, in the mid 1930s, basically mm-hmm. two things have happened. One, uh, the Nazis have risen to power in Germany and two, yes. there's this big occult movement within the Nazi party itself. And it's, it's not, I thought this was so fascinating. Yeah. I just think it's so weird that they were so practical in some areas. And then in other areas, they were like, why don't we just learn necromancy while we're at it? Yeah, exactly. The stuff that came out of this program was bananas. It was mostly Mm -hmm. run through the Gestapo at the orders of Hitler. And I think, I think part of the idea may have honestly been like, look, we have this indestructible war machine anyway. Let's just Mm -hmm. gild the lily with a bunch of supernatural stuff as well, as long as we've got all these resources, you know? Right. So they start excavating Tannis because there's sort of this occult wish list. There there are a number of things on this. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Nazis want, I mean, basically, if you can think of it as like a mythological artifact with some historical basis they want it so it's like the hammer of thor that kind of thing yeah they're uh, that's one of the things they're looking for they're sending they're sending people to look for the hammer of thor in norway they're also looking for another artifact called the eye of odin in norway uh they're sending people into the middle east to try to find the actual holy grail see yeah. To me, nothing says I have too many resources, too much money, <laughs> and too much time on my hands. Like, like saying, let's go let's look go for the, look for the Eye of Odin. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. It'll be fun. And, of course, one of the big ones is the Ark of the Covenant. Right, right, right. And because Tannis is sort of, it's one of the safer bets for the resting place of the Ark, mm-hmm. the Nazis really start concentrating there. And they're, they they launch this major excavation of the site in 1936. Now, are they working with Ravenswood? Or is he out no, of there by then? No, he's, he, Abner Ravenwood is gone by this point. He's he's way out of there. Unfortunately, he doesn't really have much more of a part in this story. But he's definitely not a Nazi, so Definitely good job. not. No. Good Ravenswood. job, Abner Ravenwood. <laughs> no, the people organizing the dig are the German soldiers which are led by a commander named Hermann Dietrich mm-hmm. and an archaeologist named René Belloc. And Belloc is sort of like he has this reputation of being the kind of guy who'd sell his grandmother to find, you know, a, a, a sunken treasure ship. So Okay, he's... let's not be too judgmental because he also has a magnificent wardrobe and he's very good looking. Uh, Sure. But he's I feel also, like if you're he's super also charming. kind of a scummy, scummy dude. Yeah. No, he is very charming. All the, all the accounts talk about how, you know, he could talk the legs off an ostrich and make it go for a walk afterwards. But... I mean, he's French and he's working for the Nazis. Yeah. And that's also doesn't sit too well. But He's anyway, a very problematic person. Okay, he's sorry, an incredibly problematic person. But charming. But charming. So 
what winds up happening is this sort of weird confluence of events. The United States gets wind of what the Nazis are trying to do in Tanis. Mm-hmm. And it's 1936. The U.S. has not entered the war yet. So they can't, like, send soldiers to stop them because that would be an act of war. That would be a big deal. So what they do... Right is they consult with an archaeology professor, a man who is teaching at Marshall College, and he picks up, forms sort of a crew, and goes to try to find the Ark first. So this is definitely illegal. (laughs) It's also in the better interests of, like, humanity, though. Okay. So I'm I'm firmly on the American archaeologist side, and he's he's great. We're going to talk about him in a bit. His name is Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. Now, he's not, like, a professional. He's not a spy, right? He's not going in there to sneak in. He was a soldier earlier on. So he has some military background. He has some military background. But right now, at this point in his life, he is teaching at Marshall College, mm-hmm. and he's teaching archaeology. Uh, he's sort of got this reputation as an action archaeologist. Oh, cool. Henry Jones Jr. was actually partially responsible for the recovery of the Cross of Coronado when he was a no teenager. No kidding. Yes. Wow. He actually, uh, it was in the process of being looted. He tried to essentially loot it back. Uh, but oh, I remember this story. He was a Boy Scout. At he the was time. a Boy Scout, exactly. Right, right, right. Winds up I think on a I read about this train. in your scouting magazine. It, when it we was were bizarre. <laughs> it was bizarre. Um, and he nearly did it, but you know, it's, it's a, a teenager story. against like nine full-grown adults, and they choose not to hurt him, but they definitely take the uh, Cross of Coronado away. Okay, but that's the same guy. That's so. It's the same guy. And that. fun okay. story later on in his life. He would actually re-retrieve the Cross of Coronado and make sure it made it to the museum it was supposed to go to. So, Yay! Uh, what a so happy ending. Dr. Jones uh, was born in 1899 in Princeton, New Jersey. So in 1936, he is 37 years old. Mm-hmm. He's been teaching for about a decade at this point. Again, he kind of has this reputation of being an action archaeologist. He'll, he'll show up and mm-hmm. he'll teach at Marshall College, but then he'll go running off on his, like, breaks from teaching, or he'll take a sabbatical to, like, go down to South America and try and retrieve a golden idol or something. He sounds very, very single. Yeah, he has been married. By the end of his life, he was married a few times. Uh-huh. But, yeah, he he's, he's an interesting, interesting man. Okay. So... The United States government approaches Dr. Jones, and they basically say, listen, you're an archaeologist. You've got this reputation of being sort of an action archaeologist. Can you get there first? Ooh, it's a race against time. It's a I race against it. time in hostile territory. Because remember, we're talking it's Egypt. It's 1936. It's under Nazi control. The Nazis control the dig site. Mm-hmm. He is known to René Belloc. So René Belloc knows who Dr. Jones is, so he can't just show up and try to bluff his way in or anything. Oh, dang. So he basically, he recruits uh, his own team, and they start digging in a different area of Tanis. Mm -hmm. And they do it fairly legitimately, but he actually is the first to stumble across the Well of Souls. He is helped in this. By a woman named Marion Ravenwood, who is our <gasps> hero Abner's daughter. And he had known Marion previously. They had uh, briefly become romantically entangled 
in uh, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. It's been 12 years since then. So, uh, but so she, it's not a meet cute. It, they've no, already met cute. No, okay. they've already met cute, and she. The sources are a little split on this. Either she really, really likes him and goes along with it, or she's going along with it just to sort of do it in her father's memory kind of a thing. But remember, she has possession of the headpiece of the Staff of Ra. Oh, right. I had completely forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. She's been, and she's been literally wearing it as a medallion for for however long (laughs) since her father gave it to her. She did not know what it was. So anyway, Jones and Ravenwood find the Well of Souls. They organize a dig team uh, led by, uh, I wish we could spend an hour on this guy, led by a guy named Sala, who is, uh, he is, he is my hero in this story. I love this guy. Um, He's such an interesting character. He's a fantastic, fantastic character. My biggest problem with this entire, like, historical narrative is that there is no autobiography by Sala, and I want that, you know? Like, he never wrote anything down I mean, before he passed away and he he's he probably got a in. diary floating around somewhere i assume i, I hope mean, it's salacious <laughs> <laughs> he passed away in the early 1990s i believe oh my gosh um, must have been 100 years old well most of the people in this are, are pretty uh pretty long-lived uh pretty hardy yeah, uh, Dr. Jones himself wouldn't pass away until the mid-1990s. He lived to be about 102 years old. Whoa. Yep. Yeah. Nice job. Yeah. Nice job. He did it. All right. So, digging at night, they find the tomb that they're looking for. They find the Well of Souls. He and Sala actually take possession of the Ark. Wait, they start digging around and they find it? Right they find away. the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Well, they found the room that it was in. And, right. but you know, mythologically slash historically speaking, this is the room and it should be in there. And it actually was. So, so the Nazis are over here digging and getting all sweaty and irritated. And yep. Dr. Jones and his group just kind just of like slide in, in and find it, grab yeah. it. It's pretty and leave great. in the middle of the night. Okay. Except that they don't because here's oh, the they thing. They don't. They don't make it out with it. Oh boy. He and Sala find it, get it up to the surface. And basically what Belloc had done. Uh, was sort of the mockingbird tactic. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't bother to keep looking for it himself. He figured out that Dr. Jones was looking for it and just followed him. That's so, so lazy. Block, yeah. come on. So the Nazis take possession of the Ark. Okay. Um, and here is where things really get spotty because there is no... There, there are very few writings on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the documentary is very spotty on this part. But essentially what winds up happening is the Gestapo officer in charge is a man named Arnold Ernst Tote. And mm-hmm. he's basically every source on this guy is he is a, he's he's a sadist. He hurts people. He enjoys hurting people. He does not believe in the supernatural. Okay, so oh, he he's, he's okay. looking for the Ark because Hitler told him to do it and it would be a big morale boost to the troops. I mean, can you imagine like the Nazis goose stepping through somewhere carrying the Ark of the Covenant in front of them? Like that's horrifying. Yeah. So he doesn't believe that it's at all supernatural, you know, carry this in front of your army and your army will be undefeatable. But he goes looking for it anyway because that's his job. He tortures people. He kills people. He's not a good person. And he's the one in charge of bringing it uh, with Belloc and uh, Colonel Herman Dietrich Mm -hmm. back to an island off the coast of Crete. Okay. 
we don't know which island this is. We don't know where it is off the coast of Crete. We the the closest we can get from any source is it's an island off the coast of Crete. <laughs> okay. Um, Aren't there like a million of those? There are. Uh, huh. It was a secret Nazi base where they basically constructed a tabernacle oh. to house the Ark. And they were Belok, doing it up. Well, and Balok was supposed to do some sort of ritual to, you know, a- awaken its its power or whatever. He doesn't have the background for that, though, does he? He he's does not, not. He's not. He's, he's not, not Jewish. Yeah. He's he's French. He's not very nice. I, you know, all signs point to maybe don't do this, but okay. The Nazis want to make a big statement, and they do. And we don't really know what happens next, except that everybody dies. Everybody. Almost everybody. Okay. So from the mainland of Crete, you could see a pillar of flame stretching up into the sky so high, it seemed to, like, dissolve the cloud layer above it. Okay? Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And it's just this phenomenal gout of flame, mm-hmm. and then... Nothing. Hmm. Now, Dr. Jones and Marion Ravenwood were taken with them. I can only assume because Belloc really kind of wanted to rub it in his face. Uh, hmm. <laughs> he seems like that kind of guy, doesn't he? He does seem like that. All the, all the sources we have on this guy are basically just like huge jerk. But it, it could have been something where, you know, you know, he's sort of like a uh, mystical mechanic. You know, I, I can't turn this knob in the right way. What am I supposed to do? So they oh, bring them that's along. Even more anyway. annoying. Yeah. Okay. And the two of them survive, and they're the only people to survive, and they never give an official statement on what actually happened. Hmm. The thing that makes the most sense is that this was a secret military base. They did have a lot of munitions stored there, and there could have been a gigantic explosion, mm-hmm. and the two of them just sort of survived by blind luck. But where a lot of people really go to on this is uh, divine intervention. Right. I mean, you it, have to. You kind of have, have to, to make that, that argument. You know, yeah. it's like bad guys steal an artifact of God. God leans down and flicks them. You know, my, my only my only problem with that is why would. Yeah, the rest of the things the Nazis were doing were OK, but yeah, they supposed to mess with the covenant. So I don't know. So. The next thing, the next time that the Ark resurfaces is basically... Wait, wait, wait. Can you tell me a little bit more about the island? Like, did, were you able to find out if they recovered human remains or if the Ark no, was, like, nothing. damaged like, or destroyed? The Ark is in perfect condition. There's nothing okay. wrong with the Ark. There's nothing left of the people other than... And what kind of Jones shape are Dr. Jones and Ravenwood in? Are they, like, injured? They're fine. They're a little shaken oh. up. They've oh, got, they're a little shaken up. Okay. Yeah, they've got cuts and bruises, and that's about it. Like it's okay. it's, and and honestly, if you want to go into the, uh, you know, the the divine intervention thing, that's kind of a good place to start. It's kind of like the people who fall out of a plane at five thousand feet and walk away from it fine. Yeah, they they okay. sur- whatever they survived, it was absolutely insane and they walk away from it with cuts and bruises i just would really like a source where they sit down and say guess what happened oprah well they're not allowed to right okay so u.s military intelligence steps in at this point oh yes so the ark of the covenant uh they make the international argument that because it was recovered by an american archaeologist digging Mm -hmm. legally with permits (laughs) (laughs) 
We'll just put air quotes around that legally. Just huge air quotes <laughs> that the Ark of the Covenant is now the property of the United States government. Okay. So the U.S. military intelligence basically spirits everybody away. They take the Ark, they take Dr. Jones, they take Marion Ravenwood, and they go back to the United States. Dr. Jones is pretty insistent that the Ark should go to the National Museum, and mm. they agree. Uh, he is told that the Ark will go on display in the National Museum uh, to be held in trust for whoever wants to establish an historical claim to it. Uh, that's the language that they used, but it never happens. Oh, no. Somewhere along the line, the Ark just disappears. Because I really love that idea that, you know... This you could go to the National Museum artifact. and see the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, it could yeah. just be like... You just go check it out. And they would have postcards and like calendars. <laughs> they would have yes. little plushies. <laughs> little plushies of the Ark. Yes. That Magnets. Uh, sorry. Something, I, something about that idea. I just really like, okay, but yeah. it never happens. But it, it never, never makes happens. it to the museum or it never, it like... never, it never makes it to the museum. It makes it back to the U S we know it made it back to the U S it, it definitely okay. got offloaded from the cargo plane that they brought it back on with Dr. Jones and Marion Ravenwood. The U.S. government asks both of them very kindly to not say anything about anything. And right. they don't. They're, they're actually very good about that. Hmm. And then the Ark just disappears. So it's in America someplace? It's they just don't know where it is? It's in the United States of America. Okay. The Freedom of Information release will only get you so much information. Whereas most of this quote-unquote like mission mm -hmm. has been declassified. They're not saying anything about where the Ark actually wound up. Gotcha. Okay. So so we can just assume that it's in the White House basement yeah. under a pool table or something? Yeah. It's, okay. it's holding up a, a shelf or something. <laughs> it's, it's in somebody's wine closet. That's where it is. I mean... All of this story is bananas. Like... It truly truly is fighting nazis to recover the ark of the covenant in 1936 is just it's such a nuts story and mm -hmm. because the people involved were never allowed to really talk about their involvement we got to talk about the documentary i mean before we get into the documentary let's yeah. just talk about how much speculation there was in the u.s about the whereabouts like it seems like it was a huge story for like a week and then it completely yeah. dropped off it the just radar. falls off the radar um well to be fair more stuff was happening in 1936 um but yeah, yeah but newspapers on. newspapers didn't really i mean this is the thing if you go through newspaper archives you're mm -hmm. actually going to be hard pressed to find any mention of it whatsoever i noticed that too and it just creates such a black hole when you're looking for yep. you know primary source evidence on this yep. story until well until 19 uh about 1979 1980 mm -hmm. so this is another weird story in the uh in in the line of weird stories so there is a director he's a young hollywood director he's pretty famous for making documentaries at the time a fellow mm -hmm. we might have heard about named steven spielberg oh i think so, i do know him so this is Spielberg before, um, you know, he's done anything like Ready Player One or uh, uh, AI. Um, back mm -hmm. then, he was making documentaries, and he'd made a really successful documentary 
about a series of giant shark attacks off the coast of, I think it was Massachusetts. Yeah, so that's actually going to be a relative disaster's upcoming episode, so I don't want to get too much into it. But yeah. the documentary is very, very true to form. It's, um, it's fantastic. And it's really like a almost a historical document. He, you know, the reenactments are amazing. Yep, yep. Just a very, very impressive film, yeah. And he'd also done another one on a supposed alien abduction a few years uh, before as well. Also so, very compelling. Yeah. yeah. No, and that one's a fantastic one. So he's making a name for himself. At so this he's point. making a name for himself as a documentarian. Mm-hmm. And his style of filmmaking is actually perfect for this because he catches mm-hmm. wind of this story. It, and, and it's really hard to pin Spielberg down on where exactly he heard it first. Uh, mm-hmm. We know he was friends with George Lucas at the time. And uh, apparently Lucas is something of a World War II buff. And maybe he got it from there. But Spielberg's always been really cagey about how he'd heard about it. And he definitely didn't know the Ravenwoods. No, no. He'd never okay. met the Ravenwoods. At this point, Abner Ravenwoods passed away. Marion Ravenwood... Right. And Dr. Jones had actually gotten married later on in life, I believe in the 1960s. Yeah. That's unexpected. That's a long courtship right there. (laughs) Uh, Let's hope it wasn't all full of drama. (laughs) Yeah. And they've, they've retired from public life. Like, I know, I know they moved to, uh, cause Dr. Jones, when he passes away, he eventually passes away in the, like I said, the early 1990s. He was living in upstate New York. Okay. Uh, still giving college lectures as well. Like, he ah. was he was still out there kind of doing things. Wish I could have been in that class. I bet he had some great stories. <laughs> I know. Don't you think? Well, and, and then the even better stories are the ones that he's not allowed to tell, you know? Right, like, right, right. And then, and, and we don't know exactly when he passed away. Mm. We know it was sometime after 1992 and sometime before 1995. Mm-hmm. Also really hard to find are obituaries for him. There's, there's one from the small town that he was living in in upstate New York. It's just like, you know, Professor Jones passed away, surrounded by his family, all this stuff. Nothing, mm-hmm. you know, nothing huge. So... The documentary. Yeah, we're back in back with uh, Steven. What's his last name? So Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, thank you. So Steven Spielberg can't use basically the the people, the people involved. He can't really use them as sources. What he does right. have as a source are some of the writings of Belloc, some of the historical documents uh, from the city of Tanis, uh, from the dig, mm-hmm. and he's got. A friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of Sala, uh, Dr. Ah. Jones's chief assistant in the Tannis dig. So Sala, of course, has had, you know, a long, good life. He, he's, he marries. He has about 8,000 kids. He's, <laughs> and, and one of those kids, well, one of his grandkids grew up at his grandfather's knee hearing all the crazy stories about what he did in the 1930s and later on. So he has this source and Spielberg starts digging around and he puts together this amazing documentary. And it's even the title's great. Are you ready? You know what? I can't even remember the title. Go ahead. Raiders of the Lost Ark. So dramatic. Such a good title. So dramatic. I love it. I love it. Um, You know, it almost outdoes the shark movie, which I think was 
T. Jaws. No. Jaws. 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 Thank you. Yep. Oh, God, that's embarrassing. That one's another one that's kind of hard to find, too. It was everywhere in the 70s and 80s, and, and now it's like, I have a I have my old beaten up DVD copy of Jaws, but... I, well, don't you know, lose it, because it's like, it's not even on Amazon. I just it, It's not, and it's not in print anymore. That's the oh, thing. Yeah. But anyway, so he makes this, this documentary, and it is bananas. He goes to Tannis. He actually films... In Ooh. the in you know the reconstruction of the city, he mm-hmm. consults with a bunch of people on how the ark was actually designed. He actually makes his own version of the ark. Obviously, it's oh, not nice. like casting gold or anything, but no. But he followed the instructions in Exodus. He did. And... He followed the instructions, and he's got like there's some pictures is the wrong term, but there's some descriptions from the people involved about what right. it looked like. And he realizes what's he's what he's going to need to do is he's going to need to film some uh, dramatic reenactments. Yeah, that's kind of his thing at this point, right? I remember yeah. the Alien movie was just like had the most over the top reenactments. I loved it as a kid. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the third kind film. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 close, close, close to the third kind. Third. Uh, it was something like that. It was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There we go. Close Encounters. Oh, yeah, how that's could I forget that? Okay. And then in the Shark movie, the reenactments are like so real. Well, like for the seventies, amazing. Well, a lot of that was recreating the actual like because with the Shark movie, you know, the people involved had written books about their experience, so he literally just took dialogue wholesale from the books and had the reenactors you know, recreate it on a, on a soundstage and it, and it worked out beautifully. I just feel like he's, he's kind of like so far ahead of this like um, trend that we're seeing now of yes. like hyper-realistic documentaries yep, yep. where like you, lo- the, you almost don't know. true crime stuff. Yeah. Right. You almost yeah. don't know where the story ends, like where the facts end and where the speculation kind of yep. begins. And this is such the perfect story for that because there's so much speculation and so much yeah. conspiracy. Yeah. And, oh, and excellent choice, Stephen. And I mean, the, the thing here, <laughs> the thing here that's amazing to me is that unlike, you know, with with the Jaws film, he had mm-hmm. the first person accounts with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He had um, the the autobiography of the guy who went through this with right. this film, with the Ark of the Covenant film. He's got none of that. The government is officially denying it ever happened because remember at this point mm-hmm. it's still classified. He right. can't use Dr. Jones as a source. He can't use Marion Ravenwood as a source. And all He's, the Nazis are dead. And, and all the Nazis involved are dead. <laughs> so what he does is basically he sort of becomes a detective and pieces together what happened. Mm. And I think the best, the strongest commendation of this film, when this film premiered, it, it, it premiered at a bunch of uh, documentary film festivals in 1981. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, the, the greatest thing about how close he got to how things actually happened Mm -hmm. um when asked for a quote on the accuracy of the film the head of the national archive said quote i have no comment on the film end quote oh yeah which to me listen to me because archive archivists if they are allowed to talk yep will talk forever exactly 
So that to is me, so interesting. that says he he must have gotten a lot of it right. And now that the stuff's been declassified, we can see he really did get most of the film mm-hmm. right. Uh, it, you know, and since nobody knew what happened in the ending, that was sort of a, uh, you know, a bit of artistic license there. But it's still really, really well done. Mm-hmm. The thing to me that is most incredible about this documentary, there's a, a few pieces of footage from 1936 of mm-hmm. Dr. Jones there there were some uh film that was shot by uh the Nazis who were working on the Tannis dig you know to document what they were doing mm-hmm. so he takes those films from uh 1934 1935 1936 and he colorizes them Ooh. but he does it very subtly and in like a desaturated kind of way this isn't like a turner broadcasting colorization this is like a mm-hmm. this is like anti technocolor okay it's got the light touch <laughs> exactly and he films with a film scale to match the actual footage from the dig and the footage of dr jones you know, I never realized that, but it's so clever. It's like it's when you seamless. when you put it together like that, it's, it's absolutely seamless. seamless. Yeah. And what he does is he he's looking around Hollywood for you know actors who can sort of stand in the shoes of Doctor Jones, mm. and he finds a carpenter who'd done some previous work on a on a sci-fi film mm-hmm. named uh, uh, Harrison Ford. Okay. And the thing is, is if you look at a picture of Harrison Ford and you look at a picture of Dr. Jones, they are remarkably facially similar. Oh, weird. So in the documentary, it becomes sort of this this fun guessing game. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're seeing Dr. Jones from the back, that's usually the reconstructed old footage. And they mm-hmm. only used Ford's face for, you know, shots where they would need Dr. Jones to be facing to a camera, right? Right. But in some long shots where you're only seeing, like, you know, the side of his face or whatever, it's really hard to tell. Are you watching the actual old footage or are you watching Spielberg's reconstruction and recreation? It's fascinating. That is so interesting. And it's it's I'm gonna have to beautifully re-watch. filmed. It's beautifully filmed. Yeah, and again, you've got to find a copy of it. I, I, the last I checked, everything from it uh, on YouTube had been taken down. There are a few, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, historical documentary stuff that are still up. But the entire documentary itself uh, always gets, you know, a, a copyright flag on it. So this whole situation is... Just absolutely fascinating. It it really mm-hmm. when the documentary is released, it really captures uh, the the public consciousness, mm-hmm. and um and and Ford actually becomes a, a pretty big star from this. Uh, he did a number of other films after this came out, so it became this huge cultural movement to then try to get the actual Doctor Jones documents unsealed right. and and mm-hmm. declassified. And that and on really, the internet where they belong exactly, and that really came <laughs> to a head uh, in in the late 1990s, where he, it was held up as you know a reason why things need to stay classified because they were really mm-hmm. worried that people would try to piece together you know and go looking for the Ark of the Covenant again. But eventually, the entire thing with just a few names, dates, and places redacted, it's out there. Uh, it was officially released thanks to the Freedom of Information Act request. 
in mm-hmm. 2015. It was Whoa. one of the last things that was done under the Obama administration. That's so recent. I yeah, know, it's incredibly recent. recent. Okay. So Ooh. it's out there. It's it's out there and it's interesting. So I just want to wrap up with a couple of interesting uh, little things about the Ark of the Covenant itself. Mm-hmm. There are a number of places that claim to be the last resting place of the Ark of the Covenant and that the one that the Nazis recovered was not the true Ark or was just a different Ark that, because because we know from Tutankhamun's tomb that there are other golden boxes meant to hold stuff. Yeah. So there is a theory that the Ark is buried in a cave on Mount Nebo, which is sort of southeast from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church claims to possess the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Aksum. Mm. The Ark is uh, supposed to be in its own special room that no one is allowed to go into except for the Ark Guardian itself. However, in 1992, a professor of Ethiopian studies at the University of London named Edward Uhlendorf uh, claims that he was allowed to personally examine the Ark and uh, he believes that it is from middle to late medieval period. So not the actual arc. That's so interesting. The Lemba people of South Africa and Zimbabwe mm-hmm. have, uh, they, they have stated that their ancestors carried the arc south, eventually hiding it in a cave in the Dumge Mountains. And then, of course, uh, one of the most famous arcs that is in the United States of America is that there is a replica of the Ark in the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. No kidding. Yep. Uh, Man, the Masons, they're everywhere. It's not the the Washington Memorial that most people think of, the big stone spire. It's it's a building in Alexandria, Virginia, the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. Oh, okay. And it has a replica of the Ark inside it. I mean, that seems like a safe place for it. Sure. The Masons will take good care of it. And one of the cool conspiracy theories is that they're mm-hmm. so upfront with saying that this is a replica of the Ark that a lot uh-huh. of the, a lot of the conspiracy theorists are, are out there saying, no, 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 that's the real one. They're hiding it in plain sight. Uh, you know, Very it never clever. went to the National Museum. It went to this particular place because of, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiracy. But that's the real one. So who knows? So the theory that I love is... Did you read the National Geographic article from the early 60s, Dr. Spencer Ashthorne, Princeton University? Yes, yes. So he led an expedition to Tanis, and he was talking about the existence of a vault beyond the vault that was described in the documentary. Mm -hmm. He called it the basement to the basement. Yep. So they weren't able to get in there before that sandstorm hit. Okay. And nobody's ever been able to dig out the place that they think he was talking about. Unfortunately, uh, as we know, that expedition ended tragically a couple weeks later. Yeah. Uh, but his drawings and a couple photographs seem to support the theory that the arc that Dr. Jones found was not the real arc. It was like a booby trap decoy arc. And the real oh. arc is still there in the basement okay. to the basement. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know. I don't know how credible that theory is, but. Uh, the Geographic did mention it in that article following the loss of that expedition team. Well, it's definitely a lot more credible than the uh, the Area 51 warehouse theory, which is that the Ark was put in like a, like a shipping crate 
mm-hmm. and just stacked in a warehouse with, you know, a bunch of other similarly sized shipping crates. <laughs> As if. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that so much. You know that stuff gets auctioned off after a while. <laughs> right. Exactly. Just somebody shows up at like a, you know. I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> 50 bucks for that one. Yeah, what $10 is that, Bob? Well, I, I don't know. It's it's some kind of arc. <laughs> oh, I think we're getting into the silly part now. Yep. Come on. Uh, one more note on uh, the life of, of Dr. Jones. Mm-hmm. He comes back into a conflict with the Nazis uh, two years later in 1938. Yeah. And that one is its own bit of craziness. Definitely worth another episode, maybe next Definitely year. worth another episode, but uh, he apparently... <laughs> so this guy, uh, you know, apparently finds the Ark of the Covenant, and then <laughs> two years later, and I'm just going to leave it at this, apparently finds the Holy Grail. <laughs> I mean, he's got a nose for these things. <laughs> he, he must. He must. He's just real good at it. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. All oh, right, banana story. You it, kind he, of undersold that when you told us. I that did. Was the craziest I, I intention- thing you've ever yeah. heard. Yeah, <laughs> it's he has had a banana's life. It's it's a, it's a crazy story. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our practical jokes in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disaster at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, we're going back to our reality next time (laughs) with a look at one of the strangest things I have ever read about. This is a family feud between the Jones and Liddell family of uh, Louisiana. Oh. It takes 40 years to get a resolution on this, so it might be a long episode. All right. That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you. And from both of us here at Relative Disasters, Happy Happy April April Fools. Fools.